You're listening to the Party in My Plants podcast. And this one, well, this episode's a deep one. I feel like the intro music for this episode should really be an Adele song because today I'm spilling the beans about how my magical engagement overlapped with a tragic death and how that taught me to live the crap out of my days and share my healthy non-crap food way more. Welcome to the Party in My Plants podcast, where I make healthy living as fun as a party so you'll, you know, actually want to do it and then actually feel, look, and live your best. I'm your host, Talia Pollock. Now let's get this party started. I've sat down to work on this episode like a bajillion times. I've brainstormed it in the shower. I've pondered it on runs, and I've asked some of my closest friends about it over dinner and via email. I've written and deleted like six drafts in the past two months, and I still have no idea what I'm about to say. All right, that's not true. I write my solo episodes out first, but I'm staring at a fully blank page right now, and I really don't know what I'm about to write and then say. On July 9th at like 12.00-something a.m., cancer stole someone I love very much, my mother-in-law. Well, technically, I'm not yet married, so she's not legally my mother-in-law. But after five years of living in the same city as her and going on numerous vacations in a variety of climates and sharing countless brunches and dinners and holidays and smiling and nodding through zillions of rambling trains of thought and biting my tongue through verbal instructions about when Jessie and I could get our dog according to her schedule or how the living room chair that we love is a bad choice because it hits the back of her legs in the wrong way when she went to the store on her own to test sit it, I can assure you she was my mother-in-law. Nancy was diagnosed with stage 3 ovarian cancer very shortly after I met and fell in love with Jesse, her son, my boyfriend, then fiancé now. The story about how we switched that noun is coming up in this episode too. I met Jesse in February of 2013 and Nancy got diagnosed in October of the same year. Just to give you a vibe for the situation, we didn't know she had ovarian cancer or that it was even a stage until like two, maybe three years into her four-year battle with it. We just heard from Jesse's parents that they found some tumors. They're not on any organs. She's getting a surgery and then doing chemo. It was presented to be like as frightening of a thing as I found a jar of marinara. It's past its expiration date. I'm going to open it, smell it, and use it if it's not creepy. No biggie. And that was the cancer battle MO for almost the entire time. Not once did Nancy say, I have cancer. Not even when all her hair fell out and she got her first wig. And not during her second wig either. It was just a no-brainer. Cancer was not a thing. And it certainly wasn't a thing that was going to steal a day, an experience, or a positive moment from her life. She simply scheduled all her trips, her theater shows, her family dinners, and her patients, she was a therapist, around her four big surgeries and her never-ending rounds of chemo. Whereas I complain or call it a sick day when I get period cramps or canker sores, Nancy skied in between chemo treatments and surgeries. And I'm not talking some wimpy green circle trail skiing. She hit some Colorado black diamonds while battling cancer. She even fully renovated a home on chemo and lots of steroids. I never saw Nancy once cry about being sick. I also didn't ever hear her say the sentence, I have cancer. At the time, I found that confusing because at home I'd cry to Jesse and I'd say, I can't believe your mom has cancer. But she didn't want to even give fear or tragedy the time of day. The thing is, you could argue, and I've admittedly really struggled with this, that she was in denial. 
The fact that she never once said, I have cancer, or I'm scared, or even shed a tear, did mean that she didn't really do anything on her own to stack the odds in her favor. This was very hard for me. Excruciating, to be honest. One of the most painful, indescribable feelings I've ever had. To watch somebody get sicker and more frail by the day, relying solely on chemo and surgeries instead of giving plants and chilling out a chance. I am not saying that if she ate plants, she would still be alive today. I can't say that. I have no clue. And to be honest, it does seem unlikely. But I do firmly believe that if she had wanted to swap out the wine, bread, and pork chops for plants, maybe she'd have been around longer? I don't know. All I know is that I relearned something I had already known, that you cannot, under any circumstance, change another human's diet. You just can't. I mean, we got her a Nutribullet for her home and her vacation home. She had endless amazing grass, unlimited sun warrior. We did smoothie demonstrations, gave her directions to her closest sweet green multiple times, went with her to multiple sessions with a nutritionist who had survived her own cancer diagnosis by going vegan, got her the best of the best cookbooks, had what felt like 200 conversations about easier ways to add more plants into her life, explained how acupuncture could help her feel stronger and healthier, talked about how how crucial to strength sleep is, and nothing changed her ways. Not even close. Every green smoothie she or we made for her was wrong in some way. Too sweet, not sweet enough. Too green, too chalky. Too watery, too thin. Too cold, too warm. I can't even begin to count the amount of tongue biting I did over four years. The buckets of tears shed on Jesse at home. The numerous pillows that have absorbed all of my frustration and devastation. It was simply heartbreaking to watch somebody who I so wanted to live not do anything on her own to stack the odds in her favor, to give her sick, frail body any semblance of an upper hand. Could the irony be any more ironic? I mean, her daughter-in-law was party in my plants, a person who proudly makes eating and living healthier not suck, and I couldn't make a difference with her. I honestly don't feel like I failed or anything because it's not my responsibility to change someone who doesn't want to change or help someone who doesn't want to be helped. I will say this. The only thing that remotely worked was, funny enough, one of the biggest tips I suggest all the time for people when they're asking how they can eat with non-healthy eaters, and that is to make extra. When we'd go on vacation and I'd make my protein pancakes, I would always make extra extra and she would always ask for a taste. I wouldn't get too excited. I would just nonchalantly give her a few bites and she'd of course flip out over how good they were and then ask for more and more. But then would she make them at home? Never. And she had a housekeeper who could cook for her. She asked me for the recipe like 1,200 times. And I think she thought it was like a step in the right direction. But just like sitting on your couch Googling your dreams doesn't make your dreams come true. Asking for my pancake recipe didn't mean she was eating healthier. So sad. But I mean, a good lesson there. Honestly, the way to even make any difference in a reluctant person's diet is just to make extra or bring extra. Towards the end, I'd just show up with like paleo banana bread, green smoothies, guac and carrots, whatever, and just start eating it. And then wait till she asked for a taste, which she always did. And then when she wanted more, which she always did. But up to her own will at a restaurant or even ordering off the hospital menu, which actually had great plant options, by the way, it was just steak and pork and maybe on a not meat day, chicken parm. 
I really can't say this enough. You cannot change people. I don't care if you run a plant-based education inspiration business. Yeah, she got my weekly newsletter and would always email me back like it was a personal email to her. Or I don't care if you invented kale chips or discovered nutritional yeast. You cannot make someone eat healthier if they don't want to. I have made peace with it. I think. I mean, it actually makes me want to cry and scream right now. So maybe not so much with a peace thing, but I have accepted that I did everything I could do. And it was her choice to put faith and live fully in chemo and surgeries. And everyone is entitled to their own choices. The fact is going back to the, was she in denial thing? It really doesn't matter because what matters so, so much is that she chose to live. And that is admirable as F. I mean, this woman lived like I've really never seen anyone live before. And as I said, when I delivered her eulogy, that they teach us to live like we're dying, you know, all the songs live like you're dying. But the thing is that Nancy died like she was living. She told me that her motto was to plan until I have to cancel which is why her old-fashioned date book, which was never more than an arm's length away from her, was one of the most important things in the world to her. Side note, she was so obsessed with her old-school calendar that she'd use old-school whiteout to keep the insides clean. And she did a lot of whiteouting at the end. Lots of moving around plans, pushing them back, but always looking forward. She passed away three weeks before we had a planned family vacation to the beach and just two days before she died, barely able to speak and definitely unable to walk or eat and carrying almost 60 pounds of tumor-related fluid in her lower body. She turned to me and said, with a smile on her face, I gotta get this fluid down so I don't have this big belly on the Cape in August. I'm serious. She really died like she was living. And kale in her body or no kale, I've never been more moved by somebody's determination to live. We're all going to die. None of us know when. So I suggest in her honor and also as like a brilliantly amazing thing to do, we all ought to die like we're living too. We all got to plan this shit out of our days, schedule in so many trips and lunch dates and concerts that worst case scenario, we have to cancel. We have to remember everyone's birthday and anniversaries and graduations and seriously, never fret over a bad hair day. If Nancy can lose all her hair multiple times without fretting once, none of us are ever again allowed to fret over a bad hair day, okay? Not allowed. Okay, but you know what is allowed and actually very much encouraged? Following your gut, which is what I did hardcore to elicit one of the most unconventional engagements probably ever. (laughs) As I've kind of maybe alluded to, Nancy wasn't getting any healthier. Her spirits weren't getting any downer, but she was getting smaller and frailer and just clearly sicker by the day because she wouldn't show any fear, which I don't know how. She did that. I mean, she was amazing, I'm telling you. But because she wouldn't show any fear, Jessie didn't really feel much fear. I mean, our moms are our protectors, right? We trust them fully. If she wasn't scared, he wasn't scared. But she wasn't my mom. And in fact, my mom was really scared. And so I was scared. So I would tell Jesse, I'd tell him that we needed to prepare for the worst. We needed to live every moment like it's her last, not be impatient with her, not miss any dinner or any brunch or skip any unnecessary errands she wanted us to do and do everything with a damn smile because we really might be running out of time. Was it horribly scary and devastating to tell my partner, my boyfriend, the love of my life that his mother is dying? Hell to the hundred thousand million times, yes. But my gut told me that I had to do this so he never had to live with any regrets. So I took one for the team and decided to become the bearer of bad news for him. He was sort of in denial at first, but slowly started to open his eyes to what was really in front of him. 
Okay, so in March, we went to Colorado with his parents for our annual ski week. Like I was saying, his mom lived hardcore. Frail as F, fresh off of chemo, she went out there and into the thin air, the high altitude, and skied many, many more hours than us youngins did. She also didn't put one plant into her body the whole week unless you count wine as a plant. Well, and my bites of protein pancakes. It was a very unsettling balance of feeling inspired by how much she was living, but also feeling very fearful by how much she wasn't resting. Well, on the flight home, she caught the flu and was very sick in bed for a week or two. During that time, she did some tests and her cancer markers, which were what the docs were using to essentially measure how cancerous she was, they went up substantially, like faster and higher than ever before. Before we knew it and before even a month went by, she was back in the hospital for an eight-hour surgery during which they found a shocking amount of tumors that had appeared since her last surgery just a couple months prior. Long story short, at least I'll keep this part short, she recovered for two weeks in the hospital. We celebrated my birthday there together on April 27th, and then a few days later, she was back home resting and recovering while optimistically starting another round of chemo. We lived so hard in May. We drove her to her beloved house in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts, which she and Jesse's dad bought as their wedding gift. They cast in all their gifts so they could get this house in the literal middle of nowhere so she could pick flowers, which brought her so much joy. We took her to see and laugh with Jerry Seinfeld, and we introduced her to paleo banana bread, which rocked her world. But her world was rocked by the paleo banana bread too late because by June she couldn't really eat. She became impossibly weak. Her abdomen swelled up like she was six months pregnant. Her tumors would draw fluid to them and cause her to blow up like a balloon. She checked herself into the hospital where she stayed for the longest four weeks of my life. The night she was checked into her hospital, one of Jesse's best friends told him that he was going to propose to his girlfriend soon. I heard this and I cried so hard. I cried and I cried and I cried. But cry right now. (laughs) We talked about getting married for well over a year. We were both in a place of, we know we're going to get married, but what's the rush? Let's keep growing individually. Let's keep partying my plants growing and we'll do it soon, but there's no rush. We've really talked about it a ton, how we both weren't really like, oh my God, I've been dreaming about my wedding day forever kind of people. And how we were both sure that when we were ready to become husband and wife, we would certainly know. Well, F, in that moment, I knew. I knew we waited too long. I knew that our whole what's the rush thing was null and void. And now we were in for the rush of our lives. So I told Jesse, I sobbed and I told him that we need to do this before she dies, that we will regret it forever if we waited for literally no good reason. I'd say part of him thought I was being melodramatic and part of him knew I was right. A few days later, he told his parents that he was going to propose to me soon. Out of curiosity that night, we just started talking about where we'd maybe like to get married. I've had no wedding dreams or fantasies before, but I did know that wherever I got married, I wanted to be a very special, meaningful place, somewhere that we were personally deeply connected to, not just some random country club or event space that turns over weddings like Whole Foods turns over almond milk. So we initially thought about Nantucket, our favorite spot arguably in the world, but it just didn't feel right. Too hard to get all of our people to, too weather-dependent, i.e. stressful. We thought briefly about a hotel that we adored in Mexico, but uh, wasn't feeling that. Let's keep passports out of it, okay? (laughs) There were lots of cool places just outside of New York City, but none of them had any connection to us whatsoever. Like, we'd never been to any of them. 
oh man, that wedding stress had begun, yo, like big time. We had frustration, a mini argument or 12, and I maybe cried into a pillow because I thought there was nowhere I wanted to get married in the whole world. And we weren't even engaged. (laughs) True story. All of a sudden, I think in a yoga class, I was just like, why not here in New York City? Jesse grew up here and had originally said he didn't want to get married here, but we were literally out of options of places that had meaning or a connection to us. So I started searching for unique New York City wedding venues and Brooklyn wedding and NYC warehouse wedding locations. And we loved what we were seeing. I mean, of course, New York City could be wonderful. That's where we met, where we fell in love where we live, where we raise our puppy, where I started my business, where he started his business. We started to get more excited and these venues looked awesome until we peeked at their availability calendars. This was in June, okay? These venues were literally already booked through winter of next year. Not like this coming winter, like the after June, July, uh, September, this next winter. The one after that winter, after the next summer and the next fall. We literally panicked. The chance of his mom being alive in a year and a half was tinier than a freaking chia seed, unsoaked. Plus, now that I had a wedding on my brain, I didn't want to wait that long. We needed to move with haste. So we viewed venues that next weekend, still completely unengaged, mind you. The fourth of the four places we visited, we loved, wholeheartedly loved, 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 loved. More details to come because we're kind of keeping it a surprise for our guests. I'm really not sure why we're doing that. Is it weird? But I don't know. It's um, it's a great, it's an, a unique, earthy, planty, structural, hip, and beautiful place. All the things we love. It was also weirdly close to our home, but in an area we never really go by, except when we drive to the hospital to visit Jesse's mom. So we only had two available dates until two summers from where we were looking. And those dates were both Fridays whatever, Friday wedding, YOLO, that's what we're doing. We decided in that moment that we were just going to do everything we could possibly do to involve Jesse's mom in our wedding. Jesse was fairly certain she'd make it to our wedding date, but Miss Practical, to a fault, just wasn't. So we showed her photos of the venue. She swooned in her hospital bed. That's the first time I've ever used the word swoon. We told her about the two available dates. She pulled out her date book. I hopped on her hospital bed with her, and she walked me through her thoughts on both of the options. The June one wasn't good for many reasons, she explained, but I can't remember. She liked the October date, October 5th. She put it in her calendar, even though her calendar didn't even go to October 5th, 2018. She put it in a special random spot. And you better believe the one item of hers I wanted most when she passed away was her calendar. And you better believe I would cherish her handwriting of October 5th for the rest of my life. I asked her twice if seriously she wanted us to push the wedding up to the summer. I told her we could do a quick one. It was fine. She wouldn't even entertain the thought. She said, thinking that way isn't helpful for me. I need to believe I'll be here. Are you crying yet? I'm sorry, but yeah, I feel like this is a Nicholas Sparks novel. (laughs) So we put October 5th on hold at the venue. A few days later on Father's Day, Jesse asked my dad for permission to marry me. Little did my dad know when he was like losing his shit with happiness that we had already selected a place to get married. (laughs) Minutes later, we told him, and he was probably more confused than that time I tried to explain Snapchat to him. (laughs) For the next four weeks that Nancy lived in the hospital, we drove to visit her every day. She'd introduced me to all the nurses as her son's fiance. It was adorable and lovely at first, but then I started to be like, dude, 
can I actually be your fiance? I mean, at this point, we were like really progressing with the wedding planning. We had a venue. We had a planner, a date. We were talking to Nancy about her favorite flowers. Dahlia's, by the way, rhymes with Talia, which I think is cute. I wanted to make sure we knew her favorite flowers just in case we could have reminders of her there. Regarding the thing that's like required to be officially engaged, which is actually not a date, a venue, a planner, or a flower plan, is the ring. Nancy had told Jesse, you gotta use my diamond guy, Philippe. Normally, that would have made me say to Jesse, you better not use Philippe. We're our own independent people. But circumstances had changed, and whatever say Nancy wanted to have, I was honored to get. By the way, I've since learned that everyone here in New York City has a diamond guy. It's like a six degrees of separation thing to a diamond guy. I had no idea. But this guy, Philippe, had helped Nancy make her cherished 25th wedding anniversary ring, which was really her only wedding ring since Jesse's parents were hippies. And when they got married over 40 years ago, they didn't actually do actual rings. Hashtag too cool for school. So one day we visited the hospital all dressed up and after spending a few hours with Nancy, cabbed down to the plaza for some wine and then went to Tiffany's to try and rings. The contrast of emotions that we experience in that few hour span, from watching his dying mom in front of our eyes to having a beautiful wine buzz to try on stunning diamond rings for size and style is indescribable. It's just how messy, tragic, and also how beautiful life is. We found the ring that I loved and he loved, a simple circle diamond. I'm a big circle person. I wear a lot of circular jewelry and I like hugs. I do them a lot. And those are like big arm circles, you know? The next day, we showed the photo of the ring to Jessie's mom, and she flashed one of her huge signature smiles and definitely gave her approval. I asked Jessie to ask her to call Philippe to start designing and building our own unique version of this dream ring. She was much weaker today than yesterday, so she said she'd call when she got out of the hospital. My heart sank, and I bolted to the bathroom to cry. We wouldn't let Nancy see us cry, by the way. Since her positivity was the thing that kept her going, we just wouldn't show her our fear and sadness. Another trick that works great, by the way, is when you're about to cry, pull up a photo of a hard-boiled egg in your mind, a peeled, gooey, slimy run. Focus really hard on visualizing that hard-boiled egg, and your sentimental tears will dissipate momentarily. I promise. But in this moment, I actually ran to the bathroom and just cried. This was just so brutally heartbreaking. So fast forward a few days later after telling Jesse that he really needs to ask her to call Philippe. Now, mind you, I fully realize how wild it sounds that I'm like pressuring this poor guy who's losing his mom to like facilitate the making of my diamond ring. I hear that. But I just want to say that as weird as that might sound, it was more important that she played a role in our future lives than me coming off as weird. I did not want to let Jesse not know that his mom blessed our marriage and lives together. So one day we were sitting in the hospital and I just said, give her the phone and have her call. And he did. And she said, I'll do it when I'm out soon. And he said, why don't you just do it now? And she called him. I took a photo of the moment. And now we know in our hearts that his mom is a part of this ring I get to wear on my finger for the rest of my life. It's like when Monica meddled in getting Phoebe and Mike back together. Sometimes meddling works. A few days passed and the 4th of July came. A day that marks outdoor celebrations and literal freedom. Nancy was still in the hospital. In fact, she was the only one in the entire hospital wing in which she was staying because it was more for surgery recovery, and I guess people don't schedule their surgeries around major holidays. But we were in there, picnic in tow. I brought strawberries and blueberries with a vegan whipped cream to make a red, white, and blueberry treat, and we made a ton of guac, excited to be able to share a bite of one of Nancy's favorite dips with her. But she basically slept the entire day, and we didn't have much of a celebration. 
One thing I do want to know is that while we were driving back and forth from our apartment to the hospital every day for a month, and while our lives were basically turned upside down, it was the healthy routines that I had already built that became my anchor. The running habit I'd established meant that no matter what the day brought, the news, the hours she was awake for a visit, whatever, I'd still get a healthy run in the morning. My morning apple cider vinegar green drink ensured that I got greens in no matter what. And you better believe it was protein waffles central for that month. No-brainer food became the best food. Also helpful since my stomach is so sensitive to emotion and I'd never experienced so much heavy emotion was having quote-unquote safe foods, foods that I knew my belly was happy eating during tumultuous times. This turned out to be baked sweet potato fries and a lentil veggie burger on a salad from one of my favorite spots by Chloe. I probably had that combo for dinner like 15 times that month. I even got it for takeout and ate at moments before Nancy passed away. On July 7th, those friends that I mentioned earlier got engaged on the beach, so we took a day off from the hospital to go celebrate with them. It was a surprise proposal party, by the way. Super cute. We all showed up at the guy's beach house. He took his gal for a casual stroll on the beach, and as they approached the house at the end of the walk, she saw all of her friends and family standing on the deck, and he popped the question. Ah, I'm getting goosebumps central just thinking about it again. It was a magical day full of celebrating life and friends and happiness, and we needed that reminder that such things exist, let me tell you. The next day, July 8th, we walked into the hospital to find that Nancy was not really Nancy anymore. She had entered a state of, I don't know, she just was clearly hours from passing. I remember vividly walking into the room and Jesse fully choked up saying, hi, mom, I love you. And I remember how much effort it took for her to open her eyes for a second to say I love you too. Those were the last words she spoke, although we spent the rest of the day saying nonstop words to her. I feel like it's not often that you get to tell someone everything you want to tell them before they go, but we spent that day telling her every single thing. And the doctor said she was fully conscious enough to understand and hear us. We said, we love you so much. We'll tell our kids about you. We'll miss you so much, but you can go. It's okay. It's not your fault. You were so brave. You're so strong. You're so inspiring. We're going to be okay. We'll all take care of each other. We're so sorry this happened to you. You don't deserve it. It's not fair. We love you. We'll miss you. We think about you every day. It was wild, but it was also so incredibly beautiful if you're into that sort of stuff. We stayed with her the entire day, not sure if she would pass that evening or the next day, but we had to take a break to drive home to walk Tommy and to get dinner. Buy Chloe takeout again, sweet potato fries and a salad, veggie burger, my safe food. Okay, I also threw in a vegan gluten-free chocolate chip cookie because I mean, come on. It was a beautiful summer night, and as we were driving home, the same way we'd driven to and from our home in Brooklyn to the hospital on the Upper East Side over this gorgeous golden bridge called the Ed Koch Queensboro Bridge, I stuck my head out of the window into the perfect summer air to take a little Instagram story of this beautiful bridge I love so much, and the bridge that literally connected us in Brooklyn to Nancy and Manhattan. And I looked down, and I saw our wedding venue. I'm not even joking. I had known when we visited the venue that we could see this bridge from the courtyard of the venue, and I knew it often made the background of photos of the exact location where we planned to have our wedding dinner. But this was almost a month ago, before our lives completely turned upside down, before we drove over this bridge at least two times a day every day, bursting at the seams with love for Jesse's mom, anxious to get to the hospital so we could give her a kiss, see her smile, be in her incredibly inspiring presence. This bridge had grown to represent her. It's impossible for us to go over this bridge and not think of her. And we'd never driven over this bridge before these hospital visits. 
we don't go that way into Manhattan ever. And we hardly ever drive. We just wanted to drive a lot to the hospital because we didn't want those raw emotions on the subway. I'm not exaggerating. We only drive over this bridge to visit his mom. This big, beautiful, unique looking bridge that I've loved and photographed from day one. This bridge that literally connects us to Nancy. The bridge that's going to be in our freaking wedding photos. That's going to be seen while we're having our first meal as husband and wife. At the wedding, she won't be able to attend. We had our meaning. We had our deep, deep connection with our venue. Holy shit, this is the perfect place for us to get married. Are you kidding me? I can't make this up. I really can't. Our huge symbol of Nancy will be at our wedding. I can't imagine anything more special than that. So we came back home, we walked Tommy, got food, and then went over the bridge again to stay with Nancy. We put on her favorite music in her room, and she was fading by the moment. We sat around with Jesse's dad, his brother, his aunt, Nancy's sister, who's slightly older but practically her twin. And we just cried and took turns holding her hands, touching her feet, sending her all the love in our hearts and with our words. It was getting late, almost midnight, and we needed to get home to Tommy. And Jesse didn't want to sleep in the hospital room like his brother and his dad did. So all of us but Jesse's father went into this other room that we had been lounging in to clean up the mess of food and pack up so we could go home, get some rest, and then come back whenever we got the call. We packed up our food, got some water, and came back to the room probably three, four minutes later. And Jesse's dad says, I think she's gone. Sure enough, she had waited until we had stepped out to pass. Jessie's aunt had predicted this. She said, Nancy will not pass with me and her sons in the room. And sure enough, we leave for like four minutes and she bowed out. Unbelievable. We cried and sobbed, same difference, and just, wow. I mean, I don't know. It didn't feel like real life. I actually, at the time, felt like I was in some movie because the only time I'd experienced anything remotely similar to this was via watching movies. There was even perfectly scored music playing, some jazz that she loved. It was wild. We collected our stuff, her stuff, and drove home, back over our bridge, peeking over at our wedding venue. Unbelievable. The family's typical rabbi, who they knew and loved over the years, was out of town and couldn't do Nancy's funeral services. So they brought in this backup rabbi that no one had heard of. Not ideal, but obviously this was the least of anyone's worries during that horrible time. So long story short, we were absolutely adored that rabbi and at the end of her funeral day asked him if he would officiate our wedding, to which he said he'd be delighted to and put it in his iPhone calendar. It still cracks me up that a rabbi has an iPhone. I mean, I don't know. I figured he'd use like a feather pen or whatever. Still not engaged, mind you. But yeah, we had locked in this rabbi. We're not religious, but we are ecstatic that the same guy who spoke about Nancy will speak about us. Just another way we're weaving her into our wedding. So like I had said before, we had been planning on going to Cape Cod with Jesse's family a few weeks after this all happened. Nobody wanted to do that. Too painful. So Jesse worked with the woman whose house we rented to get our deposit back. Jesse's dad said we should take the money we got back and just go somewhere just us. He could barely leave his house for dinner at that point. We thought about it and settled on Montauk, a really cool spot on Long Island that we'd been to the summer before and really loved. Easy to drive to, lovely beaches, great vegan ice cream. What more do we need? So we booked three nights and started counting down the days. Now, of course, we were in mourning. But honestly, we'd been mourning for four weeks while she was slowly dying in front of us. So we really did have substantial time to process it. But we're still mourning, you know? Like even now, it hits us in small waves frequently. Like the other day, I took a really silly photo of Jesse and immediately went to my messages to text it to Nancy and then remembered that that's not a thing. 
So a few challenging weeks passed and we tried to get back into doing some work. You know, being self-employed was a blessing and that we were able to literally stop working and go to the hospital daily. But it's also a curse in that we had nobody but ourselves to hold us accountable to get back into it. But a few weeks of this kind of working, kind of sitting on the couch, staring at a blank TV passed and our trip to Montauk approached. All the while, mind you, I was asking Jesse, where was the damn ring? I mean, how long could this thing take? It'd been weeks. Eventually, he said it was done. I know. Could this get any more romantic? But he said it was going to take a little while for it to get insured. Now, I knew this was BS. Big time BS. How long could it take for a dude to peek at the ring and do whatever else necessary to get it insured? But whatever. I knew we'd eventually get engaged. I mean, we had lots of money already put down for a venue, so this thing better happen. (laughs) The day before our little couple's only rejuvenating, much-needed trip to Magical Montauk, we drove two hours to Connecticut to drop our dog off at Camp Party in my plants. Okay, at my parents' house. We had a little lunch and took Tommy on a walk with my family, and I teased Jesse to my family and said he'd been doing some sketchy stuff about this ring insurance thing and that I know it's done and ready, and can you just hurry up already? My parents, thinking I was a total nut job, but also very experienced in handling said nut job for almost 30 years, now laughed at my teasing and, you know, said to leave the poor guy alone. Okay, fine. Little did I know that a few minutes later in private, Jesse told them that I was right and that he was going to propose in Montauk the next day. So we go to Montauk the next day. The forecast couldn't be worse, and we were driving up in pouring rain. Our first time at the beach all summer in August, which is crazy because I'm a beachaholic and try to get us out there the moment we trade pants for shorts. But the day just felt magical from the start. I did start it with a great hypnosis recording from Grace Smith, a former podcast guest whose episode you got to listen to. The topic of that recording was choosing how you want to feel that day, and then, well, just feeling that way that day. I chose grateful. Just fucking grateful. Excuse my French, but after the painful month that was July, I just really wanted to feel grateful on this early August day. And the hypnosis tape must have worked like gangbusters because even though we were driving to the beach in pouring rain to stay one night at an extraordinarily expensive beach hotel that we could only splurge on for one night and that one night was the only rainy day in our three-night forecast, even despite that, my gratitude level was off the charts. So we get to the resort hotel and check in and we had the cheapest rooms there because like I said, this place is nauseously expensive, but it didn't matter that it was raining and that our rooms overlooked the HVAC systems on the entire (laughs) resort. My gratitude was still sky high. As we were walking down from our room to get lunch, I just said to Jesse, okay, mister, I just need to know if it's not going to happen while we're here in Montauk, that is totally fine. I'm serious. I just don't want to be like on the edge of my seat this whole time reading everything as a clue or a sign when it's not going to happen. It'll just help me feel like I just have to not chip my nail every second, you know? I mean, I don't even paint my nails, but you know what I'm trying to say. And he looked at me with like the saddest eyes and said, I'm so sorry. It's not going to happen here in Montauk. Is that okay? I'm just really sorry. And still on my gratitude kick, I was like, that's fine. I swear it's fine. When it happens, it happens and I can't wait. I mean, I'll be fine whenever it happens. And I actually felt relieved that I didn't have to be like ready for this life-changing moment every second of this trip. Which I know sounds weird, but I feel like it's not common to know you're going to get engaged at any minute. So it's like this weird anticipation that leads you to like second guess every little detail. Case in point, we go to get tacos on the beach in between raindrops, and after we order, Justy says he has to go to the bathroom. 
Okay, makes sense. He's gone for no joke, 25 minutes. And in that time, I tried to do this new thing I'm trying out, not immediately being on my phone the minute he leaves the table. But I was just feeling like an idiot sitting at a table for 25 minutes alone, staring off at nothing. (laughs) I immediately thought, oh my God, he's planning something. It's going to happen. But then I remembered the look on his face when he felt so genuinely sad telling me it wasn't going to happen in Montauk. He never lies. So I trusted him, of course. He gets back with this elaborate story about the bathroom and how he thought there was a bathroom here, but there wasn't a bathroom here, so we had to go there, blah, blah, blah. It was a really detailed story, and so I thought he couldn't have made that up, and I just ate my tacos, which I obviously took photos of for Instagram. A few hours later, we, and and don't laugh, had a Skype call set up with our wedding photographers. Yes, this unengaged couple was Skyping with our wedding photographers. I know. Please don't judge. Okay, you can judge a little, but whatever, I'll own it. They're incredible, and I wanted to lock them in. Since I learned that venues book up like two years in advance, I figured amazing photographers do too. So they wanted to chat with us to get to know us before moving forward. Cool. So we set up my laptop on the hotel bed and had the call, which we thought would take like 30 minutes and ended up taking like an hour plus. Jesse started to get really antsy, like checking his phone and like squirming around. And I was kind of kicking him below the video camera because he was being kind of rude. He was definitely making it clear he was done with the chat, which is something he actually tends to do. So I didn't think anything of it. We quickly finished the call and he's like, can you be ready for dinner soon? I want to grab a drink first. And I was like, yeah, sure, but can we can always just get a drink at the table. I don't want to be rushed. But okay, I kind of rushed anyway. Also, it takes me 10 minutes max to get ready with dry hair, so it's really no big deal. I put on this jumpsuit from Anthropology that Jesse loved and had bought me for my birthday in April, knowing I'd have to alter the straps, which I never got around to doing with everything happening. I had fixed the straps like two days before Montauk just because I wanted to wear it on the trip, and I put the outfit on for the first time that night. He loved it. And I love any jumpsuit romper thing, so I was the happiest camper in the world. Hashtag grateful. <laughs> so we walk down to dinner, and we're about to get to the bar for a drink. And Jesse says, let's check out this other secret bar that someone told me about. I honestly didn't think anything of it. I thought maybe when he went to pee for that freaking half hour, he ran into someone who told him about this cool bar. Okay. So we walk down this dark hallway, and I'm like, nah, I'm good, thanks. I feel like it's closed. And he was like, come on. So it's lit with candles, and I'm walking down the hallway, and... I'm thinking like, this is silly. He's wrong about this bar. We're going to turn around in a sec. And then I see this whole setup with rose petals and candles and champagne and the whole thing that you can see in the photos in the show notes at partymyplants.com slash 53. And I hear our song, which is Home by Edward Sharp. But I mean, that song's on the radio all the time. So honestly, didn't even like really register with me. Literally, my first thought was, oh, they must be having a private event in here. We should bounce. But Jesse didn't seem to think so. He grabbed my hand and pulls me a little towards that romantic scene, and I realized what was happening, which is whacked out because he promised. Also, please note that we were in a closed, dark, empty lounge bar room area, and it's pouring and gray outside. Also, please note that I told him a thousand times that when the moment did happen, I wanted to be completely alone. No engagement in public, no photographer. I really like to be the center of attention when I'm choosing to perform, but not for like a moment like this. I want to be fully present. So we're alone in this closed, dark bar where we can see the gray beach ahead. And I realize what's happening, but I'm also thinking he's pranking me. So I say what everyone says when you're about to get asked by someone to marry them. I say, oh, my God, are you serious? You're kidding. Are you pranking me? And then he laughed and said no. And both of us shaking, you know, did the whole thing, asked the questions, said this stuff, put the ring on. And I've never been more surprised in my life, which is actually more surprising considering have you ever heard of anyone knowing every detail about their ring and engagement and wedding and still being shocked when it happens? Crazy. 
So we drank some champagne, took some selfies, and I still couldn't believe it. I still really can't believe it over a month later. And we learned that this bar that was closed for the night was also a nice hallway for some hotel guests to get to dinner. So as we were flipping our engaged shits, we had people in jeans and hoodies passing through to go to dinner. It was hilarious and perfect. So I'm not really sure what to say now other than that's my story. I just wanted to share, you know, I just kept asking myself, what's the point in telling this story? What can listeners gain? What's the lesson? Well, maybe there's not like a six ways to X, Y, Z for this one. I mean, clearly there's not. I guess if I were on the other end of this hearing the story for the first time, my takeaway would be, shit, man, life is short. Go after it. Because that's what I feel really proud to have done with this whole thing. I went against the grain, against the norm to do what was in my heart and my gut and my head and what I felt was right. To have the love of my life's dying mom as aware that her son was going to be loved forever by somebody she approved of. I mean, I hope she approved of me. I'm pretty sure she did. As far as plants is concerned, I wish so much that a healthy diet in life could have been Nancy's norm. I wish she pulled a Chris Carr and radically changed her lifestyle to kick her cancer's ass. But that wasn't what she wanted to do. And I, of course, have no certainty that it would have worked. And so another lesson is that you just can't change someone else. You can only make extra protein pancakes and hope that they take bites. Thank you so much for listening to the Party in My Plants podcast. I'm going to go cry now out of release because this story has been weighing on me for two months. And I hope you have a really great day. Please, in honor of Nancy, die like you're living, okay? Plan, 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 and cancel if needed. That's what Whiteout's for.